Hi, and welcome back to I Love You. I know. I'm Amita. And I'm Kevin. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and Star Wars, but it's mostly about Star Wars. Kevin, how you doing tonight? Doing great. It's been a great weekend. It really has. Like, as far as marriage goes, you know, I think we get into a routine and weekends are like our time to do chores and to, you know, catch up from all the stuff that we put off from the rest of the week when we were busy with work. But I really think that what was so great about this particular weekend is that we took a day to just be, you know, you and me together. And, and that was really nice. I liked it. Yeah, I had a great day. I wish we could do that more often. Yes, like every day. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree. But now that we're, we're kind of easing back into the whole getting out in the world and everything, we don't get to see each other as much every day. And, and I'm kind of bummed out about it. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I agree. I, I think that in a way, we stress through the quarantine time, but now that we're going back to work, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to miss it a little. Yeah, I, I definitely am. Um, you know, that notwithstanding, uh, I, I'm sure you're, you're happy to see people that, you know, aren't me, but... Um, yeah, I suppose I am. Cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, getting back into the Star Wars side of what we're going to talk about, the reason we, we had a little bit of an interlude there about our relationship is because there's basically no relationship stuff in season three of rebels there's a lot of action a lot of character development a lot of plot development um there, there's so much happening yeah this is basically for everything that didn't happen in season two this is the payoff right season two was a whole lot of setup it was introduction to a lot of new characters and um and sort of the beginnings of several plots season three resolves almost all of those leaving season four to just sort of that one major plot line throughout the season Right, right. And so kind of where we left off at the end of season two was Maul had blinded Kanan Jarrus and he escaped. Uh, we lost our friend uh, Ahsoka Tano and Ezra has a Sith holocron. Yep. So when we start season three, what do we have? So it would appear that um, some amount of time has passed. And during that time, uh, Kanan has sort of isolated himself from everybody else as he comes to terms with his blindness. And uh, Ezra has been using the Sith Holocron to learn new powers and is not afraid to use them, um, particularly on the Empire. And uh, he has, he went from, you know, even toward the end of uh, season two, he was portrayed as kind of a kid. And now he is not. Well, he a, got a haircut. So he now did, he's a grown up. He did get a haircut and he got a new lightsaber because Darth Vader destroyed his old lightsaber. So his new lightsaber does not have a stun gun built in. And he's really not in like a stunning mood anymore. No, no. Uh, the opening sequence, he does a good amount of killing, actually. And, and he doesn't look back from it. And, and one of the things that he winds up having happen, though, is that he's been commended on his battle skills and his techniques and his strategy and he has attracted attention from important people within the rebellion and has been quote-unquote promoted to lieutenant commander and so for him that just reinforces the fact that he should be following what the sith holocron is telling him to do he should continue to have that take no prisoners attitude and that they need to fight harder not um more strategically or whatever than they were fighting before yeah and and i think it's important that the you know not only is he willing to kind of kill stormtroopers now but he's not it's not just sort of you know pew pew die kind of thing i mean in the again in the opening scene um he's rescuing hondo um and uh hondo's little ugnot buddy from prison and he actually mind controls uh an imperial walker pilot and forces him to walk himself off a cliff to his death while shooting his his stormtrooper buddies, right? So it's not just like, it's not just combat killing. This is like, he's taking it very personally. Right, and I, I totally understand why he does because his mentor, Kanan Jarrus, is kind of off the grid right now. He doesn't know how he can move forward because he can't see. And he's going to resolve that, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I think Ezra thinks that now he has to step up and he has to be the grown-up here. And in addition to the haircut, he kind of uses his misunderstanding of what it means to be an adult uh, to a tactical advantage briefly. Yeah. So tell us what happened with Kanan. So after Kanan, um, you know, he loses his vision in the final battle of season two, and like I said, he's been just sort of isolated on his own meditating. And while he's meditating, he hears a voice calling to him 
Um, and he walks out into the desert and he meets uh, the Bendu. What's the Bendu? The one in the middle. What do you mean by the one in the middle? He is neither the Ashla nor the Bogan, which is the light side and the dark side of the force. He is a force-wielding, gigantic creature that lives in the desert of, um, what's the name of the planet? I don't remember. Adelon. The planet's name is Adelon. So he lives out in the desert of Adelon where Chopper Base exists. He is knowledgeable of the force. He seems to be more or less immortal or out of time. He... Uh, has a lot of wisdom, he has a lot of power, and he calls to Kanan Jaros to teach him um, how to see. Because, Well, he calls to Kanan because he says that he's brought um, imbalance to his planet, and his imbalance is both in his relationship with his student and also in his relationship with himself. And the Bendu teaches him how to open himself to the Force, and he says to see, um, and, and it basically gives him the, you know, teaches him the power of seeing through the force. Right. Which is really crucial if we're going to have Kanan Jarrus being a critical character and, you know, Jedi master throughout the rest of the show, he does need to be able to see. And so his expansive learning into the ways of the force are huge because he's going to need those so that he can help Ezra. Yeah. And and this is and you know just to put a comparison to another blind character that we have in Star Wars who uses the force or or maybe uses the force. But Chirrut Imwe, um who we remember from Rogue One, he's the uh the the blind um guardian of the wills. He uh he actually acts like he's blind. After this, Kanan basically for the most part every once in a while he asks somebody what they see, but for the most part like he seems to be able to read, <laughs> he seems to be able to see what's he knows what's going on all the time. And so, you know, what whatever you whatever you call the the force power that he has, he seems to be able to to have his vision. And then that sort of helps him get over his sort of self-pity and he gets back to apologizes to Ezra, says he's going to start teaching him again right up to the point where he discovers that he has a Sith holocron. Right, to which Kanan Jarrus is totally not cool with that because Ezra has been tapping into the dark side of the force and, you know, he's been listening to some uh, sinister messages coming from the Sith holocron and, you know, kind of going back to it anytime he feels like he needs to. And when Kanan finds out about that, he's not happy about it. And he decides he's got to take that Sith holocron away. That's right. And he actually takes it and brings it back. He brings it to the Bendu. Um, and he, he That's ca- handy. Yeah. And so he, he sort of shows it to him and the Bendu says, oh, this is this is the source of the imbalance between you and your students. And, and Kanan gives it to him as a gift. And he says a really important thing. The Bendu has a, has some pretty good Yoda like, um, you know, sort of uh, cryptic, but also very powerful lines. And one of the things that he says is, you know, because Kanan says something like my students using this and it's it's making him evil. And, and the Bendu says an object doesn't make one evil. A knowledge doesn't make one evil, but what one does with it is what makes one good or evil. Um, and so I thought that was an important point that just being in possession of or even using a Sith holocron is not really the dark side of the force. It's it's why why and how you do that. Um, and that's really sort of important for Ezra's journey. Agreed. So what we're forgetting, though, is while he's decided to hide the Sith holocron with the Bendu, he still has his own Jedi holocron hanging out on the ghost. And, you know, there's a series of adventures that go on. And then all of a sudden, who shows up on the ghost? Maul. And yeah, and I forgot exactly what the context is. But, you know, uh, Kanan and Ezra are off on the Phantom somewhere doing something else. And they get a message from Hera. And or they yeah, they I I don't know. And, and they think for a second that she's OK. And then it turns out Hera, Sabine and Zeb and Chopper have all been taken Hondo's prisoner with them, too. Oh, Hondo's with Hera. Yeah. Yeah. And they've all been taken prisoner on the ghost uh, by Maul. And Maul demands the Sith holocron in exchange for freeing their friends. And then he says, oh, and by the way, give me your Jedi holocron, too. And so this leads, uh, you know, they have, so, so what's, what's interesting at this point is Ezra and Kanan, they don't have the Jedi holocron. Maul actually has it. He just doesn't know he has it. And um, they have to go get the Sith holocron from the Bendu. Well, Maul gets a Jedi holocron pretty quickly yeah, because he, Hera betrays him with her thoughts, basically. Yeah, I mean, he, he figures it out. But, but at the time that he sends that message, you know, Kanan is sort of looking at Ezra and is like, um, 
I don't have the Jedi one on me and we don't have the Sith one either. So this is going to be a challenge. So anyway, they have to go back to the Bendu and ask him to give them the Sith holocron back, which he is reticent to do, but agrees to do nonetheless. Agreed. And I think one of the interesting things about the Bendu that we haven't mentioned yet is he's surrounded by these ginormous spiders. And these spiders aren't going to attack if you don't attack them. They're relatively peaceful beings, but we know that they can be very dangerous. And so Kanan has learned to be amongst the spiders without them threatening him or him threatening them. Ezra, however, is so entrenched in winning each battle and in such a combative mode that when he sees those spiders, he immediately goes to the fight kind of reaction. And that's where we get the master-apprentice balance back. And Kanan teaches Ezra how to be amongst those spiders without being in constant fight mode. And that kind of restores the balance of what we needed between their relationship and Ezra's path. That's right. And in, and in doing so, they get the Sith holocron back. And so they, they end up bringing it to Maul because um, they figure they can, they can do something with that. And while they're getting the Sith holocron back from the Bendu, they, you know, the Bendu asks them why they want it. And they said, you know, and, and Kanan, in sort of a very um, uh, patrician sort of way, makes Ezra, he's like, Ezra, why don't you tell him what you did? <laughs> right? And he said, you know, and he said, we needed to get our friends back and 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 um and he says he he said the the Sith wield or the the dark side wielder wants my Jedi holocron as well and the Bendu says oh he's gonna put them together and they're like he's gonna do what now and uh, the Bendu basically tells them that if you somehow merge the two holocrons, uh, you can see things that you're not supposed to see so you can see knowledge about the past the future um, things far away. And um, and he said, this knowledge is very, very dangerous and can can alter the course of things. And Ezra kind of gets into, well, why? Knowledge is always good. I, I want the knowledge. And the Bendu says, yeah, you you think you do, but you probably don't. So I wouldn't recommend doing this. But, you know, you guys do what you want. Right. And so that kind of brings us to the conclusion of the first of three legs of Maul during season three. We eventually meet Maul again during Visions and Voices where he and Ezra put the two holocrons together and they each see what the other wants to know. And that that kind of brings us eventually, as we've talked about Maul, uh, later on in the season, they, they go to the, the planet with the two sons and they encounter Obi-Wan Kenobi. So, you know, Maul's storyline comes to an end during season three, which and it's very action packed the way that it does. And it does a lot of great character development. But. Um, you know, as far as anything that we haven't touched on from Maul's storyline before, is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I don't think so. So, I mean, I think the the interesting parts that we had not talked about in our Maul episode were sort of how the you know, the knowledge of the Bendu and how that relates to it. But sort of from here on out, um, yeah, Maul's story and Ezra Kanan's relationship um, to Maul and, and everything kind of finishes out the way that we talked about in the Maul episode. And there's enough other stuff going on in season three that we can probably move off of that and on to something else. Agreed, agreed. So um, one of the things that comes up, you know, we talked in season two that we didn't really have much from Sabine Wren. Well, season three is her time to shine. She really takes some very active roles. Um, one of the, the first big things that she does is she d- goes undercover at an Empire Elite flight school. And she's supposed there's rumors that there may be some students there who are sympathetic to the rebellion cause. The rebels need other, you know, great pilots. And so she somehow is able to go undercover into an Imperial Academy, which doesn't make a lot of sense considering she previously attended an Imperial Academy and had left that Imperial Academy and has been on the Empire's radar for a while as a rebel. So how does she sneak in, Kevin? I have no idea. And and in fact, like, let's add let's add on to that in terms of you know, like this plot line is interesting and it introduces us to one of my favorite, at least one of my favorite Legends characters, Wedge Antilles, um, he all later fights in the Battle of Yavin and the Battle of Endor. He's, in fact, the only, I believe he's the only pilot who survives both Death Star battles um, in uh, in all of all of uh, Star Wars. I, I'm, you know, Luke is present for both of them, but he's, but Wedge is the only one who's flying in a spaceship for both battles. Um Sabine, not only all the things that you just said, which would, which means that first of all, they should have records of her. Second of all, um, she's the wrong age to be entering the academy. Third of all, of all of the people that the Phoenix team has, uh, she's not the best pilot. 
In fact, she wasn't training as a pilot in the Imperial Academy, so she sort of drops herself into an elite pilot school when she's not even really a, a highly trained pilot. She's a mechanic and a weapons inventor. And then on top of all of that, they basically risk one of their most important people. I mean, they don't, everybody, I guess, is pretty important, but the rebellion risks a relatively important person to ultimately get three people, three cadets <laughs> sprung from an Imperial Academy. It feels like a very unbalanced use of, of like risk and resources, as well as a plan that does not make any sense and should not have succeeded at all. Agreed on all counts. However, I do like that they've got it because it ties us into more characters that we meet in, you know, the original trilogy. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, they meet both Wedge and Hobby. I believe Hobby dies in the uh, attack on the first Death Star um, at the Battle of Yavin. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's great. And it introduces us, I think, to a couple of Imperial pilots that pop up from, from time to time as sort of bit characters. Right, isn't that where Scarus we first meet at? The, I think so, yeah. Yeah, and in, in my head, I just, I see him because they draw him like Tom Skerritt, which is the, the you know, he's a, an actor. He was in Top Gun. He right. Was like the, and, and I always think that that guy's, uh, that guy's like General Skerritt. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's an interesting little uh, deviation. We, we get a lot more Sabine right there and... You know, we've talked about how she's this weapons expert, but, you know, her ability to just kind of step in and roll with the punches, we we see that really come up quite a bit. And and that's going to prove very important as we move on through season three. Um, We also uh, spend a lot of time with Grand Admiral Thrawn. So he is a bad guy, but he's a really cool bad guy. Yeah, he's one of my favorite sort of villains in this whole thing. And um you know, he was he was originally introduced in Legends canon in what's really the, the first trilogy written after Return of the Jedi, um, which is called the Thrawn trilogy. It's now no longer canon. Um, and it was a huge disappointment. That was one of the biggest disappointments when Disney bought Star Wars and declared those those books to no longer be, you know, part of the story that Thrawn was erased from the from the whole thing. So having him back is really great. Um he is a very, very honorable um, bad guy. So he's a Chiss. Um, the Chiss come from a system of planets outside of outside the Outer Rim, out in the Unknown Regions. And through some books that are now canon, um, he basically joins the Empire in, in order to help the Empire prepare for some threat that he knows about from the Unknown Regions. And he declares his allegiance to the Empire uh, in the hopes that the Empire will help the Chiss when the time comes to to fight whoever it is that they're going to have to fight. And so he has a very, um, a little bit different, so he, you know, he's loyal to the Emperor, but he has a very, you know, his own code of honor, his own uh, way of going about fighting. And while he is kind of um, very brutal, he's also, um, you know, and there's a scene where basically the, the rebels win a battle and they could pursue him. And he tells his uh, he tells Admiral Constantine, no, 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 they've earned their victory today. We'll get him next time. Right. And I, I think it's very interesting because he treats each member of our rebel friend crew with respect, you know, and he recognizes their skills and he's appreciative of what they do. He's impressed by how they all come together. He knows that their abilities are are worthy of being impressed. And, you know, he, he just takes it to a new level. Whereas I think that most of the Imperial bad guys that we've met thus far have just been like rebel scum, rebel scum. And here we are. He's like, these guys aren't half bad. And I, I respect that. Uh, he's got his interesting art collecting hobby as well. Yeah, he has this sort of um, part of part of the way that he strategizes he studies art, and through art, he understands the psychology of his opponents, um, and that you know gives him a unique perspective into what they're going to do and how they're going to react to situations. So he has, you know, he employs strategies that other Imperials don't. He is very patient in his fights, um, and that ends up rubbing some people the wrong way. In particular, Constantine, who is the um, Imperial Admiral who was controlling the fleet over Lothal before Thrawn was brought in. Um, Constantine gets what's coming to him. Definitely. Um, so there's a really cool episode where we go back to Hera's planet. We see her dad. There's, you know, more bad French accents. And Hera is also going undercover. She's pretending she's some kind of house servant. 
Yeah, and they're they're basically I forgot what brought them there in the first place. They just sort of show up. I there think it's like a distress call or something. Yeah, like that. and they're yeah. helping her father, and her father's rebelling against the empire. And and it turns out like her father, you know, owns used to own this giant mansion, which is now imperial headquarters. And she wants to break in and uh, steal um, what's called a kalakari. It's basically a like a kind of like a family tree totem. That's very important to the Twi'leks. And so she and Ezra and Chopper break in and they almost get all the way. I mean, they, they get it. It's in Thrawn's office in the house. And then they get caught by Thrawn. And again, by recognizing the fact that, you know, the other Imperials are mad that she's stealing some trinket, you know, some native junk. And Thrawn, of course, understands what it is, then starts to put the pieces together, realizes that the only person who would be interested in stealing it would be a member of the family realizes that um that she is a member of you know the Sindula family and then immediately turns and and stuns the the stormtrooper standing next to him who happens to be Ezra and they and everybody else says why'd you do that and he goes cuz rebels always have annoying friends nearby <laughs> Yeah, no, he's just so clever and you you just really appreciate his commitment to doing the right slash wrong thing. Um, And basically his interest in art and the way that it cues him moving forward is super helpful as opposed to the other Imperial bad guys because they, they just start, you know, orders, focus on the mission. You know, they don't learn anything about the people they're fighting. Yeah, and and this this go, kind of goes to his upbringing outside of the Imperial Academy, where the Imperials um, tend to focus on just sort of overwhelming strength instead of um, real strategy. And so this is what makes him very successful. He's you know he's the only non-human Grand Admiral. He's actually the only non-human Admiral in um, the entire Imperial Navy because the Empire is pretty anti-non-human, um, but he's that good. So. Right. So kind of moving on to more non-humans. Uh, remember how after Order 66, all of those clone troopers were supposed to kill all the Jedi and then all of the separatists were supposed to turn off their droids. And then we don't and I guess the clones got decommissioned, whatever that means. It sounds sinister and bad. But unfortunately, it would appear that maybe a few folks got forgotten. Yeah, um, there it it turns out in a what is supposed to be a raid of an abandoned um, weapons depot, uh, Rex. What is it? Rex, uh, Ezra, Kanan, and um, Zeb stumble upon some uh, Clone Wars era battle droids, uh, including a super tactical droid um, called I think Kelani, um, and Kelani basically after he captures them reveals to them that. He decided strategically that the shutdown order was a Republic trick, and so he chose not to obey it. Um, Then he eventually has come to realize that the Clone War is over, but he never got to fight the final battle. And so he insists that that Ezra, Kanan, and Rex battle his droids to rescue Zeb in like a live war games action to prove that his strategy was better than the Republic strategy. Right, and it's actually kind of a cool episode. Normally, droids are annoying and they don't seem that intelligent, but this episode, you know, we get to see that those tactical droids actually were kind of cool. We get some resolution between the clones and the droids because, you know, they, they were clankers as far as Rex was concerned. And, and so, you know, naturally, this unguarded munitions depot winds up being attractive for the Empire to track our rebels to as well. And then we see the rebels, the clone, and the droids all working together. Yeah, and there are a lot of really interesting parallels that they draw between Rex and the the battle droids. And in, in he even points it out himself that he was sort of bred and, and programmed in a way for combat, and so were they. And, you know, and there's a lot of like, we're all not that, we're all not as different as we thought we were. And really Ezra in the end, when, when they, when they get to the end of the, you know, the, the little war game, um, it's basically a stalemate in a way The the battle droids lost because they were old and broken down. Um, their strategy was sound, but they couldn't, couldn't execute on it. And so Ezra in the end says, well, wait a minute, when the Clone Wars ended, the Republic lost the the separatists lost 
who won? Why did it end? And neither Rex nor Kalani really have a good answer to that. And then that's when sort of the Empire shows up and they they all kind of agree that the Empire is really the only the Empire and the Emperor are the only winners of the Clone War. And that then they decide to team up and fight the Empire, which they do successfully, at least successfully enough to escape. Right. And I think that's an important point that you made, too, is that, you know, if you remember back in season two, when Ezra had that vision in the Jedi Temple with Yoda, you know, Yoda is telling him that, you know, you, you don't win a war, that kind of thing. Why? It's not why you fight. It's more how you fight. Like, and do you even need to fight those types of things? And so Ezra's been fight, fight, fight for so much of the season. And here he is in an actual war game and he's fighting. And then all of a sudden he learns, you know what? Sometimes there is no victor. And I, I think that is where we start seeing, in addition to some of the trainings from Kanan, we see a pivotal move with Ezra's character as far as realizing that you need to think these things out. And we start seeing some different actions from Ezra. Yeah. Yeah. He starts to get a little bit more thoughtful after that, trust the force a little bit more um, and, you know, really start to think about who they're fighting. Right. Um, so we're going to take another step back and go back to our friend Sabine Wren. And there's a lot of intrigue that happens with Mandalore and also the Darksaber. So walk us through a little bit of what happened there. Yeah. So um, during the one of the Maul episodes, uh, when when they're all on Dathomir, um, Sabine finds the Darksaber and uh, she grabs it from from the, the Dathomir cave and brings it back and is sort of thinking about what it means and realizes that Mandalore is sort of under the thumb of the Empire. And so she ultimately um, they if you remember in season two. Uh, we have the the protectors, Finn Rao. Um, they they captured him and they've been holding him in prison for a while. And Sabine and Finn Rao talk every once in a while, and they talk about you know the fate of Mandalore and this and that and whatever. And eventually, um, they go back to Conquered Dawn, Conquered Dawn, and find that the Empire has sort of slaughtered the protectors. And at that point, Sabine decides that it's time to do something. So she goes out into the desert with um, Ezra and Kanan for a while, learns how to fight with the Darksaber, Finn Rao gives her some um, additional Mandalorian gear. And so, and she decides to go back home um, both to save her father, who's about to be executed, and sort of try to save Mandalore. And she pretty much goes on this quest to find somebody to give the Darksaber to. She does not want to lead Mandalore. She wants somebody else to do it. And she feels she's responsible for choosing who that person is. Right. And I, I think in that lightsaber training with Kanan and Ezra, it's really funny because, you know, initially Kanan gives her a stick very similarly to how he did with Ezra. There, it just kind of shows that there's this like Jedi way of training that even though the Jedi are mostly extinct, you know, their their ways still live on. Um, and what we kind of learn is that that way of training doesn't necessarily work for everyone because it's really infuriating to Sabine and she feels like she's being condescended to and so again the tricks that she gets from Finn Rao don't necessarily amount to her winning the battle but it amounts to Kanan learning that maybe not everyone can or should be taught the same way and to respect her skills and to trust her and so when she has that vote of confidence from Kanan she now has a newfound confidence in herself and is willing to confront everything that she left behind on Mandalore to which we, we wind up finding out that she disappointed Mandalore pretty hard by going to that Imperial Academy. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I don't think going to the Imperial Academy was a, was a problem. What she did there was she designed for some reason. And, and we, we talked through the timeline of this. She had to be like 14 or 15 when she did this. So it was actually pretty impressive. But she designed some sort of pulse energy weapon that would basically attack and burn to a crisp anybody wearing Beskar armor and not affect people wearing Plasteel armor, which Stormtrooper armor is made of. And for some reason, she designed a weapon that basically can only kill Mandalorians. Um, yeah, why she would learn how to genocide her own people doesn't make a lot of sense. But yeah, that's what she chose to do at the Academy. That's right. And so she did that. And then she realized that the Empire intended to actually build it. Um, apparently she did it as just like an academic exercise and then she discovered the empire was going to build it. And so she, um, destroyed the plans and destroyed the prototype. Um, but she didn't destroy it enough because they, you know, Gar Saxon and the Imperial loyalist, uh, Mandalorians build another one and, and use it on, 
uh, a bunch of Mandalorians until she's able to destroy it again. Um, but this this reveals sort of why it was that she had to leave Mandalore, why she works with the Phoenix Squadron, why she was sort of on the run in the first place, um, and why she has a hard time going back to Mandalore. They consider her a traitor. And I can't say they're entirely wrong. No, they, they aren't. But then when we meet her mom, um, you know what? Her mom's not entirely not a traitor either. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, her mom basically uh, welcomes the the crew in and then turns them over to the Empire. And now her mom, if you if we remember, there's a lot of Mandalorian threads that run through the whole the whole the saga, especially the animated series. But her mom is Ursa Wren. Um, she fought alongside the you know the anti Maul contingent in the Siege of Mandalore. Right, right, because we saw her next to Bo-Katan yes. in season seven. That's right. So she was, yeah, she was sort of Bo-Katan's second. Um, and apparently Clan Wren, partly as a result of um, of uh, Sabine's sort of um, traitorous activity, her, her treasonous activity against Mandalore, and then in part just because of the ebb and flow of Mandalorians, um, they are now like a sub-clan to the Vizlas. Uh, they're, and, and they're more or less imperial loyalists they're not eager imperial loyalists but they're on that side um and you know as the season goes on basically mandalore erupts into a civil war where clan wren is now on the anti-imperial side right and sabine shows that she is wielding the dark saber and that brings a newfound respect to her and there's this legend that the dark saber reveals itself as um you know the seeker of truth or whatever and honor and leadership and so whoever wields it has all of those things and so sabine is able to start unifying the people yeah it's basically the excalibur of the mandalorians right so ultimately what winds up happening is she realizes that her place is on mandalore and she needs to stick around there uh and and, you know so our crew is down a person but not really because we have a new fulcrum yes and so they, we find out um, at some point that we're getting messages from Fulcrum again. And I think somebody points out that, you know, it's not Ahsoka. Ahsoka is still lost. And, um, and we start to, we get, we get little hints of it because the person who is the new Fulcrum in a couple of Imperial encounters um, helps our friends escape or gives them information that he shouldn't really be sharing with them. Um, and they're a little suspicious because this is a guy who's not really been their friend in the past. And um, it's revealed eventually that um, it is Agent Khaled. Yes. And so in that episode uh, in season two, where he and Zeb spent some time in a moon together, uh, he decided not only to respect Zeb, but also that maybe the Empire wasn't doing the right thing. Right. Their time together was really important in shifting how Agent Callus looked at his role within the Rebellion. And I, I think that that episode at the time is really cool, but it, it doesn't really make itself known to how cool it is until you see season three and you learn that he decides to become a traitor to the Empire and to help the Rebellion. And he there's a series of episodes that happen in the second half of the season where he almost gets caught. And the Empire realizes they have a traitor in their midst. And Grand Admiral Thrawn decides to play a very intricate game of chess to try to figure out who it is. And so at a certain point, um, you know, our friends decide they're going to bring Agent Callus out of all of this. And so they infiltrate this factory and they're, you know, trying to basically help Agent Callus get uh to the rebel side and he's like no i still have work to do on this end you know i can still keep feeding you guys information and so it's really interesting to see that he's willing to risk even more because he could have been snuck out and it wouldn't have been that big of a deal whereas like earlier in the season we saw mon mothma you know she realizes she's got to leave the senate she's got to go into hiding and, and she's just like yeah my work is not to be on both sides it's to be all in on uh the rebellion and here we have our spy who's going to still keep working both ends. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and it's interesting in that episode that he is kind of ready to leave. But there's a whole thing where where, you know, they're pretty close to finding him and he ends up framing another guy 
Um, and, and it's only in that framing that he decides to stick around because he says, Hey, I just, I just caught fulcrum. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see it. Um, and then, and then it turns out that he maybe overdid it because, um, everybody believes that they caught the, the, the real fulcrum except Thrawn who knows exactly who it is. It's callous and, um, captures him shortly after that. Yeah. And at the end of that episode, Grand Admiral Thrawn says, Fulcrum will prove to be far more useful to the Empire than he ever was to the Rebellion. And he decides, you know, Thrawn's like, we're totally going to, you know, turn this around on him and make his actions with the Rebellion feed our intelligence. And, And I think that, you know, that just goes again to show that Thrawn is so smart. Like, I mean, he's a terrible guy and, you know, uses his power for evil, but He's so smart. He's a really good bad guy. Yeah, he's pretty good. Um, so, you know, kind of the, the last couple of things that we've got in season three, we've got uh, we've got to extract uh, Agent Callus. He he can't stay with Rebellion. And then we also have to figure out, you know, what's happening within the Rebellion, what's going to unify them and what's going to separate them. And right now there are two different movements. There's Mon Mothma's movement, which is, Slow and steady and probably not that, um, I don't know, it they're, might they're not, not work. They're not very rebellious. I mean, she just, she wants to just sort of like get information and they're still trying to trust in diplomacy, even though she's been run out of the Senate and the Senate's completely ineffective and, um. Yeah, she's relying on Bail Organa for like information in the Senate, but right. like the Senate's super corrupt. He has virtually no influence there. And so our rebels are being led by these people that are trying to, you know, fight fire with, you know, wait and see as opposed to water or more fire. Yeah. And I mean, admittedly, they don't have the military strength of the empire, but they're also not really willing to do anything of note. And then on the other side of it is Saw Gerrera. And Saw is willing to do everything. Perhaps too much. Perhaps too much. Like, would that they could only meet in the middle somewhere. But Saw Gerrera is... um, yeah, he's willing to do, you know, kind of anything and everything. And there are some pretty uh, pretty lively debates between like Mon Mothma and Ezra and some other folks about whether Saw's got it right. And um, and so uh, Sabine and Ezra get to spend a little bit of time with Saw. And ultimately through that, and, and we can talk through the plot, but they ultimately decide that he's maybe too extreme for them right. uh, in the other direction. And I think a little bit Ezra is leaning towards, you know what, Saw might have this right, because why are we fighting if we're not willing to win? And, you know, but then when they see just, you know, Saw is too committed to the cause. You know, we we saw that in Rogue One. We've seen that in previous episodes. We saw it in Clone Wars. Like, Saw, he's gone too far. He's more than all in. And it's really, like, corrupted the way that he can reason. And we see they're on Geonosis. And it, it's important to note that, like, everyone's been killed. There's, like, nothing left on Geonosis. Yeah, the Empire basically sterilized the planet of Geonosis. Right. So there's one little guy. Uh, I don't know what his name is or whatever. Ezra calls him Click Clack because that's the closest thing that they can understand to a name. <laughs> yeah. So they, they call him Click Clack. And he's, like, the last person on the planet. And the last of his kind. And he's super scared. And Saw is going to, you know, just rough him up and beat the crap out of him. Trying to get information. Thinking that Click Clack is like hiding from them information that is important to the rebellion. And he's not. And what he is hiding, though, is an egg. He's got another of his kind that he, he wants to see. And so Saw is willing to finish out the genocide that the Empire started. Because he's so committed to the cause. And we see Ezra take a step back and go, you know what? Actually, no, we we can't go in that path. Yeah. This is yet another person who wants Ezra to be his like apprentice or his second or his student or whatever. And this is a one that Ezra ultimately rejects because he says, yeah, maybe like you can't you can't. Gen-. And, and several people in a couple of different scenes say, if we're going to be as bad as the Empire, then what's the point of fighting the Empire? Exactly. So I, I think that's an important episode, an important plot device. And, you know, it also kind of brings us into what happened with Saw as well. Like, because they talk about him during the season. 
and you know there there's these other factions within the rebellion and we we need to see him we also need to know where he is because we have to imagine that at some point along this time um he got separated from um Jin Erso. And yeah. Yeah, so like that that was probably a little bit before this uh cuz she she's in some kind of prison when we finally meet her in Rogue One, but we we have to see what happened with him. He's been like off with these guys on Jetta and they do kind of tie it in about something on Jetta so that that's how we know where he goes. Yeah, so. I mean ultimately, you know, his quest and all of this and the reason he's on Geonosis and then Later, we see him on a container ship, and he's trying to figure out what the Empire is building. He knows they're building a super weapon. He doesn't know what it is. And, you know, we find out on Geonosis, to be fair, Click-Clack is trying to tell him that they're building a Death Star, but he, they just nobody speaks his language. And then he ends up on this container ship, and they find a giant kyber crystal, and he, you know, and, and Sabine and Ezra want to free some, some hostages on there, and he wants to leave them as hostages so that he can find out where they're taking the Skyber Crystal, and it's in that that somebody talks about going to Jeddah, and so I think that's sort of where we see him in Rogue One is, is now based on Jeddah trying to figure out what the Empire is doing, but his whole thing is he, he knows they're building the Death Star, he just doesn't know what it is or where it is, and he really, 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 really wants to find out. Right. So it, it's bad news. Um, but I do like that it kind of ties everything in. Uh, we, we were looking at some of the stuff as far as like sequencing as to when all this came out. And so this series of episodes came out shortly after Rogue One. So it was a real nice tie in. Furthermore, they also got Forrest Whitaker to voice Saw Gerrera. So we got that connection there because he's the actor within Rogue One. And he does the voiceover work on Rebels, too. So yeah. I thought it was cool. Yeah, it was a good tie in. Um. And and it really does serve to highlight um, how ineffectual the rest of the rebellion is. And this leads to a really important um, sort of an important point at the um, end of, you know, after the f- end of this season and into the beginning of next season. And then what season four means in terms of um, our Phoenix Squadron folks joining the larger rebellion. Exactly. And, and so the last couple of things that have to happen within season three is we need we need to see a little bit of sacrifice. So we see um, Commander Sato, right? Sato, yeah. Yeah, so he winds up sacrificing so that Ezra can, um, you know, seek out more members of the Rebellion. And, and that's pretty, you know, it's sad. But, yeah. you know, it, it it's the theme we're going to see. Yeah, so. ultimately Thrawn figures out where Chopper Base is on Adelon, um, sort of through Fulcrum. Um, gives him the last piece of information that he needs by accident. Uh, and so Thrawn figures out where they are and comes to attack. He blockades. And, and at the time, it's uh, Phoenix Squadron and General, I think General Dodonna's yeah. team are, are both there and they're getting ready to attack Lothal. And so Thrawn kind of boxes them in, has a couple interdictor cruisers, uh, which can prevent um, ships from jumping to hyperspace. And he's preparing to annihilate them. And they decide that they're going to try to have Ezra sneak out and go get help from somebody. And so, um, yeah, Commander Sato, and, and, you know, this is where Admiral Constantine finally gets what's coming to him. He breaks with Thrawn's plan. He says he wants the glory of killing the command ship. And then Sato basically rams his interdictor cruiser, killing Constantine and himself and giving Ezra the gap that he needs. And then Ezra jumps out and, and calls Mon Mothma and says, hey, I need, like, we need reinforcements, we need help. And she says, um, I will try to negotiate good treatment for the prisoners. And then that's all he gets from her. And so he ultimately goes back to Sabine and gets some help from the Mandalorians. Right. And so it, it's so disappointing from Mon Mothma because we wind up learning, you know, like, she just maintains such an important role within the rebellion and she chokes on so many of those leadership choices. She's just like, eh, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And, and I'm just, I'm so frustrated with her because she's willing to ask everyone else around her to make sacrifices, but she never is. That's right. And, you know, and I mean, that even goes all the way to, you know, because the, the time that we see her in the original trilogy is she gives the briefing um, before the attack on the second Death Star when many Bothans died. She's the one who says many Bothans died to give us this information. And again, like Bothans are willing, you know, she's willing to sacrifice Bothans. 
And even in that, she hesitates for a moment to order an attack on the emperor himself because she thinks that might be too much, even though that's like ultimately the goal of this whole thing. And so, yeah, it's it's a theme that kind of goes through her her whole thing. And and by that point, Admiral Akbar is involved and he makes sure that they do the right thing and, and this and that, whatever. Um, by the time Ezra gets to Mandalore, there's a full-on civil war going on. And so he asks Sabine to, you know, come and help and bring some troops. And she hesitates a little bit and then she agrees to come um, and help him out. And and somewhere in there, she gives the, she finally does find someone to give the Darksaber to. Right. Which I, I think she was always looking to do anyway. Yeah. And it, and it turns out she's, uh, she offers it a couple times and ultimately Bo-Katan is the one who takes the, the Darksaber from her. And, and at first Bo-Katan says she's had her chance, um, you know, and, and she's not her sister. And she, cause she had run, you know, she led Mandalore briefly um, during the Clone Wars days. And then she was deposed by Gar Saxon. And, um, but everybody on the anti-Empire side is willing to follow her again. And that's sort of the last time we see the Darksaber until um, the Mandalorian. Right, right. Um, so what's really interesting is that as we get to go into season four, uh, Agent Callus has been rescued by the Rebellion, so he's now back to them. Um, we still have to deal with Thrawn. He's still a, a thorn in our side. We still have to deal with the fact that uh, Lethal is still under the Empire's oppression. Um, we've got this rebellion that is going places it's not just you know a couple of you know terror cells here and there throughout the empire it's it's actually a thing yeah and and you know the phoenix squadron after their base on adelon is destroyed who um everybody that's left they meet up with the main rebels uh cell on yavin 4 and so this is where we actually you know kind of see the whole operation being set up on yavin and you know our you know phoenix formerly specters who were just a little like tiny little Robin Hood gang are now uh, like uh, an important part of the Rebel Alliance um, and operating off of the main base in Yavin. Right. And Harrison Dula has really established herself as quite the captain within the rebellion. She's got a lot of respect. Um, you know, Sabine Wren has not just the, the people of Mandalore who know her now, but people within the rebellion. There are two Jedi. Um, and that, that's a big deal because we don't have any other Jedi. Uh, all of the other Jedi that have been scattered throughout the universe are still in hiding. So, you know, we've got Jedi, we've got these trained captains, we've got these pilots that have been busted out of the Imperial Academy, and, and we've got, you know, adventures going from planet to planet to scoop up additional leftover munitions from Separatist and clone uh, activities that now we know how they got the stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, in in the the original trilogy, there was just this rebellion just sort of existed. And now we really have a full story about how they got to where they are. And um, and, you know, this makes the beginning of Rogue One make more sense. And and certainly the beginning of A New Hope makes more sense. Um, We've got that whole background. And so, you know, this leads into season four, which, you know, has to fit somewhere between that and Rogue One. And so we're going to see it kind of wander off into another tangent. Right. And it's going to be action packed and, you know, we know where we end up. So, you know, I'm not going to spoil anything, but it's pretty intense. Um, As far as love and marriage and relationships, basically, there's none of that in this season. Uh, it, We talked about in season one that we kind of thought that maybe there was something between Ezra and Sabine. They could not be any less into each other in this season. Yeah. And I guess that's you know, and that's fine because that's not really what Star Wars or or at least these shows were about. But it's a little surprising that, you know, the writers never made anything of that, but they really didn't. Um, they're they're friends and that's it. And, and there's no like romantic relationship there. Um, and even at that, they're they're kind of antagonistic friends. They get in each other's face a lot. Um, yeah, I mean, the you know, we we see a little bit of, you know, Sabine's parents and her family, but um, only just sort of brief, brief glimpses of it. And I'm not even sure that her parents are over on the screen at the same time, even though we see both of them. Um, but yeah, there's really not a lot of that in uh, in this season. There's so much other stuff going on and so much plot happening um, that we don't really we don't really have a lot of um, a lot of yeah, especially romantic, but really any interpersonal relationships. It's a, it's a lot of um, 
more adversarial and and you know who's fighting who relationships for sure uh if anything you know the romantic relationship between Kanan and Hera when Maul is on the ghost and he has Hera take him to go get the Jedi um, holocron, we find out Kanan's got his own bedroom and, you know, like they've been hanging out for a while. You thought maybe they might share quarters, but not so much. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And, and in fact, their relationship is kind of strained during this season because throughout most of it, um, you know, Hera is getting more and more involved in the rebellion and uh, Kanan is really not interested in being a bigger and bigger part of a bigger thing. He wants, he really, he in fact would prefer to go back to being just a little small raider squad. Um, and he does not want to get involved in another war, but here I they think are. he'd be down with hanging out with the Bendu in, in the desert and just doing nothing. Well, that, that too, right? Um, speaking of the Bendu, just his last stand, um, he gets. You know, when Thrawn comes and to, to wipe out their base, uh, Kanan goes to sort of warn the Bendu, and he is very upset with Kanan for bringing war to his quiet world. And he turns himself into a storm cloud and just decides to kill everybody, for very much proving that his one in the middle. Like, he's not interested in taking any side in the war. He's not interested in saving anybody. He now wants everybody off his planet, and he's willing to just lightning strike kill everybody to, to make it happen. And... um and he provides at least enough distraction for the ghost to escape Thrawn. Um, and then Thrawn and his guys kind of shoot him out of the sky. And then they have they exchange words. And he looks in Thrawn's eyes and he says, um, I, I can see you and I can see your defeat um, wrapped in cold arms or something. And, uh, and then Thrawn tries to shoot him and he disappears and just sort of laughs, proving that he is sort of immortal. And he even says, like, I'm beyond your ability to kill me. Um, so, uh, yeah, we see we, we and, and this is kind of the first time that we actually see a character that is sort of fully neutral. Right. Um, you know, it seems like in Star Wars, ultimately, everybody comes down on either the light side or the dark side or the rebellion or the empire. And some people switch sides, but they're always exactly on one side. And the Bendu claims that he's in the middle. And we rarely see, you know, usually then, you know, middle beings are beings that just do nothing. And what we see is the Bendu is very, very willing to take an active participa active participation in what he thinks is important. And it doesn't mean that he's following anybody else's rules or morality. Exactly. And his rules and his morality are the only things he's going to follow. Um, but yeah, so basically no romantic entanglements, no platonic entanglements. It's really action, character development, plot uh, moving forward, bringing us closer and closer to the Battle of Yavin and having a, a fully staffed up rebellion. So it, it's a it's a lot of a lot of things happening. Yeah, I mean, as and I titled last week's episode something about um, like nothing and, and nothing and everything. This one is just everything and everything. It's totally everything and everything. So I, I guess, you know, if we want to, you know, kind of dangle something for people to look forward to in, in season four, uh, what do you think uh, the, the big takeaway from season three is to get them excited? Um, that it's, you know, that it's time to it's time to move on with the rebellion and and join up and and go for something big um i will say season four actually does have some romantic relationships so we'll actually be able to talk about that for once. it really does get your hankies ready yeah. um it's uh a, a few tear jerkers right there yep. not a rom-com if you will but it's still it's uh you know we we definitely have those romantic entanglements so on that note i love you i know